You're listening to the flagship show of the Restoration Radio Network, the network for the thinking Catholic. And now, your host. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the flagship show on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I am joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Anthony Chicada. Your Excellency, Father, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to be here, Stephen. Well, it's the show everybody's been waiting for, Your Excellency and Father. It's all about the love, the L-U-V, and we're going to be getting into Amoris Laetitia. In fact, I got a message uh, that someone said they just could not wait for the next uh, Francis Watch. We Obviously, we can't do Francis Watch this month or even uh, from, from March because we've got to focus on this document. And I was telling Father Chikata, uh before today's episode that, his Excellency had called me earlier today. We had some show outlines out there, but he said, he said, how much time do we have? And I said, well, obviously, Your Excellency, we don't have enough time to cover all of the garbage that's on here, but we're going to, we're going to try to, to do a little bit at a time, and we may have to, uh, throughout the year, come back to this over and over. So we're going to approach this quite simply today. We're going to look at Chapter 8 which even a Francis says in the document is going to be the difficult chapter. And then uh, we're going to then walk through different reactions from everyone from the New York Times to people like Sandro Magister to Roberto De Mattei. Everyone we've heard on Francis Watch for the last two years will be commenting on this document, which, which everybody has been waiting for uh, pretty much since this whole synodal exercise began. Um, but before we get into that, I guess, Your Excellency and Father, I'd like some first impressions, both uh, did you ha- how much of it did you have a chance to read, and what was your impression? I mean, we've had all this preparation to read Francis's Garbage, but I, I have to say, even reading it, I was taken aback. After all this time I've spent analyzing him, it's still terrible. So, Your Excellency, what were your first impressions? Well, fortunately, I have a staff, and I divided it up among the staff, uh, priests and seminarians, and uh, five of them, actually. And they all took a part, and they all went through it and uh, highlighted all of the salient quotations. So I have really seen the whole thing uh, and everything that really uh, is pertinent. And my reaction uh, my a couple of things one is that i think it's an insult that uh it's an insult to people's intelligences because this is clearly a document that is approving of fornication and adultery and it is all couched in language that would uh avoid uh which would convince the um average person that uh, nothing has really been changed. But it's all in code, 
and everyone knows what he's talking about, and it, it is really an insulting way to put it. Why doesn't he just say that we're going to approve of adulterous unions and uh, of fornicators? Why doesn't he just come out and say it? So, you know, I think it, to, to put it in this way, this 250 pages, uh, is insulting, number one. Number two, it is loaded with error and even heresy, uh, but it'll take a long time to analyze this document. We may not even get into the heresies. Uh, uh, condemn doctrines and, and uh, all sorts of things. Uh, it is, it is, uh, and it is a, an approval, a wholesale approval of fornication and adultery. It is naturalistic. Anytime anything is wrong, it's because it's against human dignity or it's against love or it's against uh, some sort of development that you're supposed to have. Nowhere, or very, very seldom, is there anything about the law of God. Uh, so, you know, it's a naturalistic document that, that is uh, uh, just a, a license to fornicate and to, to commit adultery. Well, Father Chicada, ugly, ugly words like adultery and fornication. I hope you have some prettier things to say. Negative theology, definitely. <laughs> Negative theology. Rigid. Uh, Rigid. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, I don't have a staff here to, uh, <laughs> to analyze the document. I mean, I could have given, given it to the kindergartners and see what, see what they come up with. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it would have made more sense to them. But uh, the uh, trying to slog through this stuff is um, uh, is uh, really an exercise to sit down and try to do it. And I did. I tried to do it. But uh, eventually, I, in preparation for the show, I, I limited myself to looking at some of the salient paragraphs that others had had. Um, uh, talked about it and pointed out. Bishop Sanborn is entirely right. It's going to take a long time to analyze this one because it's so long. So that's uh, my my uh, first impression. Second, uh, it is uh, not um, the the how, how it turned out. Of course, was not unanticipated. Bergoglio uh, announced from the beginning that this is what he wanted to do that he wanted uh, to uh, give uh, uh, sacraments to those in the second marriages. And uh, so he was determined to do it. So the, the net effect of it wasn't a surprise. Thirdly, I would say that the, the use of the code language uh, that Bishop Sanborn pointed out was uh, something that I expected uh, I expected as well that he's not obviously is not going to say clearly that um, uh, uh, adulterous unions are okay, but he's going to speak in code. Everyone understood the code. That's what you see time and time uh, again in the the secular commentaries. And it's not a question of uh, you know distorting. Uh, something that our beloved Holy Father says. He communicated his message uh, effectively, just as he communicated his message effectively to that uh, lady in Argentina whom uh, he called the woman who was in a second marriage. So those, I would say, are uh, uh, my reactions, that uh, it's going to take a long time to analyze it, that it's what we expected, and that his code is very clear for what he approves. 
Well, and as I said before, we've been preparing for this code by all of the all of the stuff that we've been dealing with with Francis Watch over the last two years is uh, a lot of the footnotes were actually direct quotes we've dealt with in previous Francis Watch episodes. So let's dive right into chapter eight. And I want to go to uh, paragraph 293 under the heading gradualness in pastoral care. And I'm just going to read a sentence, a, a very long sentence there. And then if His Excellency can control the urge to, to, to vomit before I finish, I'll let him have the first crack at it. The fathers well, if not, also, I'll take over. Right, sure. <laughs> the fathers also considered the specific situation of a merely civil marriage or, with due distinction, even simple cohabitation, noting that when such unions attain a particular stability, legally recognized, are characterized by deep affection and responsibility for their offspring, and demonstrate an ability to overcome trials, they can provide occasions for pastoral care with a view to the eventual celebration of the sacrament of marriage. So we've seen this before. They're quoting a text we've already looked at. Um, but uh, what's going on here, Your Excellency? Well, I'll start out with the, the marginal note with, which one of my seminarians put with regard to that. And he said, to save them from hell where their fornication leads them? Is that the pastoral care? <laughs> <laughs> I guess he's learning well. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, uh, yeah, pastoral care. What do you do for someone who's in fornication except to uh, urge them uh, very strongly to abandon their fornication, to separate, and to come to confession and avoid the occasions of sin? That's the, the pastoral care that must be given. Um, you know, this means that you are, are well, I don't know what it means, but I mean, there's nothing else to say to them. They, they, they have to separate their, their living in mortal sin, and we'll see later that we can no longer say that. Uh, but they are living in mortal sin. If they die in that state, they're going to hell. And it's very, very clear. Uh, the let me quote you a very famous person, namely St. Paul, who says in, in 1 <laughs> Corinthians, Know you not that the unjust shall not possess the kingdom of God? Do not err, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor liars with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor extortioners shall possess the kingdom of God. That's pastoral well, care. Well, surely, Your Excellency, uh, St. Paul uh, is just speaking about uh, an ideal, something to strive for. <laughs> yes. I mean, surely we're not yes. ruling these people out of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that'd be very, <laughs> very uh, rigid. No, well, it's always to re be remembered that Bergoglio says that there is no hell because if you're bad, you just get annihilated. So there's no hell. We're all going to That's heaven. Right. That's as long right. as we're nice, good people, and we're hope, you know, hoping and striving. Uh, so this just means that the priest comes around and says, how are you doing? And, you know, it would be good if you got married someday. Uh, that, that's that's what is implied here. Hmm. Yeah, he's presenting it as if there's some uh, merit, actually, to what they're doing. Yeah, you know, that, that, was, that, that was comes one out of my later. Inverse. Yeah, and they, it's that, something about giving their gift to God. Yeah, how can you say something like that? <laughs> we'll, well see that a little later. 
Well, speaking so a little a little later in the next paragraph at the bottom of paragraph 294, right above paragraph 295, we see he continues this train of thought. Um, whatever the case, all these situations, and he listed some other situations above, all these situations require a constructive response, seeking to transform them into opportunities that can lead to the full reality of marriage and family in conformity with the gospel. These couples need to be welcomed and guided patiently and discreetly. That is how Jesus treated the Samaritan woman. He addressed her desire for true love in order to free her from the darkness in her life and to bring her to the full joy of the gospel. Now, Your Excellency Father, I don't need to tell you about that gospel. It's, it's one of the most well-known gospels. But as I remember correctly, our Lord, what it was out in public, so it couldn't have been that discreet. And he reminded her that, he, the the man that she was with was not her husband. Yes, he said you have five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. That's right. what he said to the Samaritan woman. And uh, that's not very welcoming. You know, <laughs> no, it isn't. But that's what converted her. The fact that he knew that—that's what converted her. Uh, uh, that uh, showing his his divine knowledge. Uh, but. Uh, no, of course. I mean, you know, we're we're saying the obvious here. That, you know, St. Paul is explicit. Our Blessed Lord is explicit. And, and the woman caught in adultery, he said, go now and sin no more. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there is no a license for either fornication or for adultery. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, marriage honorable in all and the bed undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Yeah. That's not welcoming, you know. That, that's just uh, ugly words again, Your Excellency. Just ugly rigid, words. I would say. Um, uh, so, um, uh, and he says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators. Yeah. Yeah, this is a departure from sacred scripture. It's a departure from Catholicism. And if I could go back to 293, he says, For the church's pastors are not only responsible for promoting Christian marriage, but also the, quote, pastoral discernment, that awful word, of the situations of a great many who no longer live this reality. Entering into pastoral dialogue with these persons is needed to distinguish elements in their lives that can lead to a greater openness to the gospel of marriage in its fullness. Mm. And this goes back to that same old uh, elements thing, just as the Protestant churches have elements of church. Uh, so also uh, fornication, living together, concubinage, has elements of marriage, and we're supposed to bring it to its fullness. It, you know, that as if this is something positive that they're living together and fornicating together that this is something positive and it just needs to be completed see so the, the the discipline of the church is if you're living together the first thing you do is separate because there's nothing positive about it not a single thing uh, it's just filth and dirt and you're going to go to hell with it and and you separate and then uh, we'll talk about a, a marriage, and the marriage will be very private, just family alone and no mass, nothing, just uh, will take five minutes. That's how you fix those problems, because it's a scandal. 
that people are living together. It's not, you know, some sort of elements of marriage. Marriage is a contract. It is not shacking up together. It's a contract, and it's a sacred contract that is an image of Christ's relationship to the church. And this is just a blasphemy to try to fix up fornication. The... uh... To return for a second, Your Excellency, to the elements point, mm-hmm. um, it, one notices that uh, more and more and more in uh, the discourse of people in the modern church, the people have picked up on that idea of elements. And the idea behind that, I think, is that nothing is, that no um, principle is uh, black and white or no principle is absolute that everything is a mixture of true and false and good and bad, and the more of the positive elements that you have, the better you are. Yeah. But that, that's the um, so it's uh, it's become in uh, morality uh, the equivalent of Frankenchurch in ecclesiology. That mm-hmm. this is exactly the language uh, that they're talking. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 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 table of elements. If you have the, if you have the right chemistry, uh, you know, in a couple, uh, then uh, you rank somewhere, I think, on the table of elements, something like that. Right. It's constructive. Yeah. Right. And then you've got those noble gases that won't mix with anybody. Um, you know, <laughs> I think those are the daily homilies at at the Santa Marta by Bergoglio. Well, I wouldn't call them noble. Um, I, His Excellency gives a sermon when he was talking about elements, and he said, um, would you get on an airplane that had elements of an airplane? And I thought to myself, <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a great uh, you know, point. It's like, who's interested in elements of anything? I want the whole thing. As we say yeah. in American English, we want the whole enchilada. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's just uh, that uh, essence, uh, this is a philosophical principle, essence does not admit of of more or less. You know, if you're a man, you're either entirely a man or you're not a man. You're not half a man or three-quarters of a man, or if it's gold, it's either gold or not gold. Essence does not admit of more or less. That's a general philosophical principle. So the essence of marriage does not admit of more or less. The essence of church does not admit of more or less. It's either there or it isn't there. Very black and white. Very black and white. It requires integrity, just as as all of the, in, you know, getting back to chemistry and gases and whatnot, it, the, there has to be, the, the chemistry has to be integral. If it's missing one proton or something, you, you don't have gold. Or, or uh, it, the, the, uh, it does not admit of more or less. And you're, so also you're, marriage does not admit of more or less. You're speaking about a regular situation. You're, actually, you're speaking about a regular situation. As paragraph, two, uh, paragraph 296, the header says, the discernment of, quote-unquote, irregular situations you're not being sensitive to that your excellency and in fact it says in this paragraph the way of the church is not to condemn anyone forever it is to pour out the balm of god's mercy on all those who ask for it with a sincere heart for true charity is always unmerited unconditional and gratuitous and the footnote is uh self-referential to one of bergoglio's sermons consequently (laughs) There is a need to avoid judgments which do not take into account the complexity of various situations and to be attentive by necessity to how people experience distress because of their condition. 
Uh, Father Chicada, are you distressed by that quote? <laughs> I'm about to say something constructive about it, I think. The uh, well, again, you know, it's it's this this crazy um, uh, code that everyone understands that um, uh, from this uh, a reader with a minimum amount of intelligence and knowledge of church affairs and what what the um, teachings uh, of the church have have been on divorce and remarriage is going to say that well. Uh, everything, I guess, is sort of relative because you have to, uh, situations are complex, you can't make a judgment, people's emotions are going in different um, directions. Uh, so you uh, really can't uh, make any sort of a severe uh, judgment on it. And this plays very, very well uh, to modern society. The idea that you can't um, uh, judge, uh, uh, judge anyone or judge anything to be objectively uh, uh, good or bad. So uh, it's 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 more of the code, and I think people understand it. You know, I'm distressed um, because uh, of this particular situation, and uh, you know, I had three wives before, and uh, the uh, and I'm. Uh, I may be a little distressed by number four, and uh, so uh, this this distress somehow covers over uh, any notion of um, uh, moral objectivity of right or wrong. It's the I've spoken many times about the fundamental error of Vatican II being the relativization of truth, and certainly Stephen following me around <laughs> with these speeches. Um, has listened to that, I'm sure, one one point or other. But this is the relativization of morality. This goes back to Vatican II. This is this is uh, uh, making the church fit the modern world. A giornamento. It goes back to 1958. It goes back to John the 23rd. We are going to make the church conform to the modern world. Adultery and fornication are the culture of the modern world, and we're go- not going to make the church stay in the Middle Ages when there was a whole different idea of matrimony, according to them. Mm-hmm. So that's all it is. It's As I always say, Bergoglio is not the, the, not the problem. It, this is Vatican II. But it is the, the true outcome of Vatican II, and that's where the Novus Ordo conservatives get off the boat. They say, oh, no, no, Vatican II would never say this. And, and indeed, it, it did not. And it, but it, it gave, it, that idea of Vatican II, a giornamento, updating, uh, is what gives rise to this. And it's open-ended. Uh, this is just one more column to fall uh, and crash to the ground. That is indissolubility of marriage and the and the natural law just come crashing down until the the Catholic Church looks like the Roman Forum today. The, well, the one other thing that um, uh, I would say is that the uh, it seems the only takeaway that uh, people had from this, the only major takeaway, is that um, it's okay to give sacraments to the divorced and remarried. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that that's the dominating uh, motive of uh, virtually all the publicity on it. And no one is going to uh, take seriously, uh, you know, the other nonsense that, uh, that he throws in to uh, cover this. And I... 
don't think that you know he really intended anyone to uh, take the rest of it seriously. It was just a, a camouflage for that one major point that uh, uh, sacraments for those who objectively are living in adultery is uh, fine, and the church is uh, changing her teaching on that. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Well, um, in paragraph in paragraph two ninety seven, we are told that no one can be condemned forever. Because that is not the logic of the gospel. <laughs> well, does he have a chapter and verse for that? Because I have a few that say a little different. Would you care uh, to share those with us, Your Well, the the dividing of the sheep and the goats, for uh, for example, and telling the goats that they have to go to uh, to to endure the flames that that were prepared for the devil. Yeah, uh, I would say that's pretty negative. Uh, and uh, those who do not believe shall be condemned. That's in St. Mark, uh, after he tells them to preach the gospel to all nations. But, of course, according to Bergoglio, uh, preaching the gospel to all nations is solemn nonsense. That's uh, proselytism is solemn nonsense. So I guess we have to take that out of the, <laughs> out of the book, too. Uh, but uh, there, the, the, the uh, gospel and the epistles are full of condemnation. They're full of condemnation, uh, and and uh, that that's the beauty of the Catholic faith that it is black and white. You you know exactly what road leads to heaven and what road road leads to hell. This is where does he get this? This is nonsense. Not even solemn. So. Yes, and, and and also the you know the, sure anyone can repent, but you have to come on your knees, go to confession. Say that you will avoid the occasions of sin, which means giving up Fifi uh, and living in the same apartment with Fifi. Uh, that's that's the, and and uh, you know maybe not even seeing each other because you're, it's an occasion of sin. Maybe even to see each other. Usually that's what the priest prescribes. You have to separate. I mean, you know, this is a very dangerous situation, and you're sinning by it. And and uh, uh, and then. That, that's how you avoid being condemned forever. Uh, so, yes, the door is always open to anyone who has committed any sin at all, anything in the book. The door is always open, but you have to be truly penitent with purpose of amendment, which means you have to give up, in this case, your fornication. One of the uh, quotes that uh, the conservatives have been bandying about as a sort of victory quote is laid just a, a sentence beyond what I just read, and it says... <clears throat> Naturally, if someone flaunts an objective sin as if it were part of the Christian ideal or wants to impose something other than what the church teaches, he or she can in no way presume to teach or preach to others. This is a case of something which separates from the community. Such a person needs to listen once more to the gospel message and its call to conversion. But like all Vatican II speak, we have this followed directly Mm -hmm. by this. Yet even for that person, there can be some way of taking part in the life of community, whether in social service, prayer meetings, or another way that his or her own initiative, together with the discernment of the parish priest, may suggest, you know, Father Chicada, maybe they could sing in the choir. (laughs) Take up the collection. Yeah, take up the collection. Take up the gifts. These are people who repudiate the, the teaching of the church. These are people who say, I don't care if the church you know i don't care about adultery i don't care if i'm in a second or third marriage who cares 
that's what they describe first, but these people can still be integrated into the parish. The you know they could be like Ms. Gowleiter, as Father's uh, Father Chikat is Ms. Gowleiter in his book, who leads the you know the the liturgical commission or something like that. You don't have to yeah. totally exclude them. You know they could arrange for the balloon masses and the clown masses and things like that, and uh, they might be very very talented with regard to those things. Well, they could start annulment uh, seminars. But, I mean, there's whole there's whole portions <laughs> that they you know that they could get into. How to or, get an annulment you know, three weeks or fewer. Or uh, the best way to go through a divorce, for example. You know, that, sure. They would be experts in that. They could uh, you know, say how to avoid you know, big lawsuits and you know, try to work out divorce and do divorce counseling. That would be very good. You know, <laughs> and being facetious, of course. But you skip something in that paragraph, if I may go back, after no one's condemned forever. The next mm-hmm. sentence says, listen to this. Here I am not speaking only of the divorced and remarried, but of everyone in whatever situation they find themselves. Mm. You know what that means? (laughs) Yes. My good seminarian has that uh, uh, highlighted in yellow. Uh, that means homosexuals. I mean, that really opens the door to every kind of bestiality, incest, uh, everything. Whatever... Everyone in whatever situation they find themselves, uh, you know. So that, that's what we're talking about here. That's a very, very broad and open door. And uh, the commentators picked up on this as well, uh, that uh, uh, that particular phrase, that is the consequence of it. That's what it, it uh, leads to, uh, an opening to, well, you name it, whatever is against the... Uh, uh, sixth and ninth commandments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a trashing of the sixth and ninth commandment. That's all it is. Well, um, see, speaking of those commandments in particular, Your Excellency, uh, in paragraph 298, there is a footnote, and it's footnote number 329. There's a quotation. Uh, there's a, a quotation from uh, JP2's Familiaris Consortio, uh, which I I I feel certain we must have addressed on Francis Watch, but I was just shocked. In reading it, um, they're speaking about uh, people who are who are living together as brothers and sisters. It says, in such situations, many people, knowing and accepting the possibility of living as brothers and sisters, which the church offers them, point out that if certain expressions of intimacy are lacking, it often happens that faithfulness is endangered and the good of the children suffers. So let me get this straight. Doing, doing what the church teaches endangers fidelity and it causes the children to suffer. I, I, you're going to have to help me with this one, Father. I, I, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Well, the, the idea is if the parents are not having relations, how this affects the children. And this seems to say that, that somehow they're suffering, you know, as, uh, are they listening at the door? You know, what's going on? And, <laughs> the uh but uh, the idea is that uh, something like this is so absurd but even though on the face of it it's uh, absurd it's a code and mm-hmm. the uh code that uh, he's conveying which people pick up is that well uh, you have to have these certain expressions of uh, intimacy 
because otherwise a harm somehow will uh, result from it. So that uh, there's no question really of uh, parents with children who uh, realize uh, the sinfulness of of, uh, uh, their own behavior uh, would resolve to, you know, live as brother and sister and uh, refrain from marital intercourse. Uh, There's no question of that. Because the the opposite now seems to be presented as a like a positive value. Mm-hmm. So, once again, the code wins. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and um, Father, it's not just a code for those people who who want to engage in that behavior. But I have to I have to think what a slap in the face to the Novus Ordos who are trying to do the right thing. They're being told that they're endangering the children. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and um, uh, the uh, uh, you know it's obviously it's not a difficult thing to do, and uh, the people in that situation who try to uh, live according to the law of God uh, really have to uh, you know discipline themselves, uh, etc. for for the good of their children, and uh, you know it is it it uh, requires a lot of effort and and uh, a lot of prayer firm resolution, et cetera, and, and people are able to do it, but this just poo-poos that as if it's, it's um, uh, the opposite of what, what uh, things should be. And imagine people who have gone maybe 30, 40 years observing this law uh, of living as brother and sister, reading this now, that in fact they were compromising their children's welfare by staying away from each other. And that it's obviously okay to uh, engage in sexual relations uh, from this document. Imagine how they feel, how cheated. That I've done this for for all of the you know thirty, forty years, and now it's okay. I mean, this totally destroys the credibility of the Catholic Church. I mean, this is how oh, people totally. lose faith, right, Your Excellency? This is how people yes, leave the church. They do. They do. Because continuity is everything for the Catholic Church. If it doesn't have continuity, it doesn't have a connection to our Lord and the Apostles. If it loses that connection with our Lord and the Apostles, it is a bogus church. All right. So continuity is everything for the Catholic Church. This is not continuity. And because the Church cannot defect, we have to put the defection on where it really and truly lies, and that is in Bergoglio, who is not a Catholic, I don't think he believes in God. Uh, I think he's an atheist. I think he's a communist atheist. That's my opinion about him. But uh, he is destroying the Catholic Church by destroying its continuity. And uh, they're going to reap the the effects of this uh, in the long term. Um, uh, Could I, in that paragraph, 298... Uh, the, in the, at the beginning, the divorce to have entered a new union, for example, notice how they they say that, uh, can find themselves in a variety of situations, there's some code, which should not be pigeonholed or fit into overly rigid classifications, leaving no room <laughs> for a suitable personal and pastoral discernment. That I'd like to see how many times that word comes up. It is the hocus pocus of the Novus Ordo. Yes. It is discernment, like it's some sort of like he waves a wand over you or something like that. There's discernment. It, it's 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 like crystal ball. What is discernment? What principles do you? What are you discerning? 
<laughs> what are the principles of the discernment? And but it, that that word is used for really everything to 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 destroy the commandments of God. Discernment means I'm going to let you off the hook of the commandments of God. That's what it means uh, for anyone who's reading this. You know, we sh- we should do a like a glossary of, of terms for this thing. <laughs> you know, where you see discernment, read fornication. <laughs> Right, well, uh, openly and, rigid classifications like are you married or not? You know, right. uh, very very rigid. <laughs> Do you have elements um, of marriage? Mhm. And also this this uh, wonderful sentence: the church acknowledges situations quote where for serious reasons such as the children's upbringing, a man and woman cannot satisfy the obligation to separate. And then you've got the footnote that we just talked about. That they they can uh, engage in sexual intercourse lest they harm the children. This it's for really the kids. A very it's for the kid wicked the kid. document. So it, it it gives you you know by the the juxtaposition of this nonsense, it gives you the the uh, clear conclusion that he obviously wants. Mm-hmm. You know that that this is something entirely permissible. Uh, also, a, the primacy of conscience. Over law, quote, those who have entered into a second union for the sake of the children's upbringing and are sometimes subjectively certain in conscience that their previous and irreparably broken marriage had never been valid. So that means that they can decide for themselves, uh, well, you know, our, our first marriage was null and therefore we're okay. Uh, and we can uh, proceed uh, with sexual intercourse. Um, and uh, and then he says, it must remain clear that this is not the ideal which the gospel proposes for marriage and the family. And that is a theme in this thing, that the the idea of indissoluble marriage is an ideal, but, you know, we can't always achieve the ideal. That's the fullness. But, you know, we can have elements of it, but we cannot achieve always that ideal. It's just too hard. It's like Martin Luther said, God does not expect us to obey the commandments because it's just too hard. That's what he said. And this is the same idea, that this is an ideal, you know. This reminds me of a conversation I had with an Anglican woman on a plane about 20 years ago. I said to her, why is it that the, that the royal family cannot divorce under pain of losing their throne?" whereas everybody else can divorce, and that the whole religion was founded upon a divorce. And she said to me, well, it's an ideal. You see, that the royal family should observe the ideal, but everybody else, uh, you know, they, they, they can't really live up to that. You can't expect them to live up to that. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah. Well, um, I, I need to get us to paragraph 300, because you're going to have to do some decoding for us. Uh, well, I think it's it's it, it's the language feels technical, but I think it's it's clear we're seeing the same theme over and over again. This is a more clerical conclusion. Um, one sentence into paragraph three hundred, what is possible is simply a renewed encouragement to undertake a responsible personal and pastoral discernment of particular cases. One which would recognize that since the degree of responsibility is not equal in all cases. The consequences or effects of a rule need not necessarily always be the same with the footnote saying 
This is also the case with regard to sacramental discipline, since discernment can recognize that in a particular situation, no grave fault exists. There it is, Your Excellency, discernment, uh, two times in 30 seconds. Yeah. I need a dictionary to read this. Yeah. Yes, discernment. That that covers all sins, you know, like charity covers a multitude of sins. Discernment covers a multitude of sins. Just mm. anything goes. Um Yes, uh, the uh, well, there it is, the sacramental discipline. That means through discernment, the crystal ball and the hocus-pocus, you can tell people that they can go to Holy Communion or receive the Novus Ordo Communion wafer. That might be a better way to put it. Um, now, you skipped something in 299. That I, persons. I have in, to. I have to be judicious with what I'm picking, Your Excellency. Or we'll be here all night. <laughs> but go ahead. Please uh, read what you want. Well, to just that they are not. They should not be. These people in irregular situations should not. Uh, they are not excommunicated members of the church, but instead are living members. Living members always means people in the state of sanctifying grace. Yeah, that struck me as well. Yes, How able that? to live and grow in the church and experience her as a mother who welcomes them always, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so that's very important. And later he'll say, and I'm sure we'll get to that, that we cannot say that they are living in the state of mortal sin, mm-hmm. fornicators and adulterers. Well, uh, I I think part of the point of the the living, uh, again, is just Bergoglio's general godlessness. Because uh, while when you and I talk about living members of the church in the the state of sanctifying grace, uh, his idea of uh, living and of of life is uh, like a naturalistic one. In other words, someone who uh, has all of these different uh, experiences uh, that uh, that he can have, let us say, at the local Novus Ordo Church. So yeah. that his his idea of uh, uh, what is living and and uh, what is dead seems to be purely naturalistic. Mm-hmm. Yes, but still, though, he uses the term mortal sin later on, which is unusual for them. We cannot say that they are living in the state of mortal sin. That means they're living in the state of grace. Because yeah. it's either mortal sin or grace. The light is either on or off. And that means people who live in fornication and adultery are in the state of grace, which is contrary to everything the church has ever taught. It's contrary to St. Paul, contrary to the gospel, everything that has ever been said in the history of the church. I'm, you know, I'm going to come on to the quote that His Excellency is, is uh, speaking of. I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to the flagship show of the Restoration Radio Network, I'm Stephen Heiner, and with me today, along with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, is Father Anthony Chicada, and we've been discussing Amoris Laetitia, in particular Chapter 8, uh, paragraphs 291 through 300, and we're going to continue on. Um, I have to say, seriously, when I got to paragraph 301, I, I pretty much fell out of my chair. If you look at the footnotes, for the first time in my life, I saw JP2 and St. Thomas in the same footnote area, which, which I've never seen before. Um, but he dares to quote St. Thomas in this document. Um, I'll read your quote that you were referencing. Hence it, is, it, hence, it can no longer simply be said that all of those in any quote-unquote irregular situation are living in a state of mortal sin and are deprived of sanctifying grace. 
more is involved here than mere ignorance of the rule. A subject may know full well the rule, yet have great difficulty in understanding its inherent values. On and on and on. St. Thomas Aquinas himself recognized that someone may possess grace and charity, yet not be able to exercise any one of the virtues well. Like observing the sixth commandment. (laughs) Yes, I haven't, I didn't look up the quote in St. Thomas, but I'm sure what he's referring to is what what he calls remiss actions. That is where the acts of the virtues are not up to your level of charity. So, you know, your prudence or your justice, there is a, everyone has a level of the virtue of charity. It's like how bright the flame is and how hot it is, your love of God. And there's something called remi- a remiss act, and that is where the intensity of the virtue, say a lower virtue, uh, is not up to what charity, your level of charity demands. That's known as a remiss act. And I'm sure that's what St. Thomas is referring to there. Uh, it's, he's not referring to keeping the rules about adultery and fornication, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, the the but you know that's like putting uh, uh, it's it's like a, a you know a homeless person getting into a Cadillac and driving around town in a Cadillac. Because when you bring out St. Thomas, it's, you know, in the midst of all of this dirt and filth. It's like, look at us. You know, we have St. Thomas. St. Thomas supports everything we're saying. See, it, it's it's uh, it's just a big show. It's a sham, and uh, you know, has nothing to do with with observing the sixth commandment at all. Uh, but uh, the uh, uh, that's uh, but you missed again something. <laughs> we have to do this right. Uh, uh, where is it now? I can't find it now. Uh, but the um, uh, but there's a lot in here. Uh, the the more is involved than e- e- mere ignorance of the rule. I mean, who is ignorant of the rule that to marry again outside the church is wrong and a mortal sin? Who is ignorant of that? You would have to be practically a, a you know a very low IQ or totally uninstructed to have ignorance concerning married getting married the second time. All of these people know that they are in sin. Of course they do. They don't care if they are. They know they're going to hell. Well, you know, yeah, so to bring that up is absolutely absurd. Uh, but a subject may know full well the rule, yet have great difficulty in understanding its inherent values. That means I repudiate the rule. The, the rule is stupid. It has no inherent value. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the rule. It was stated by God on Mount Sinai. All right? And and it was uh, put into the the tablets. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He doesn't understand. He has difficulty understanding its inherent values. You know, and and don't forget the the when Moses descended from the mountain, he found them fornicating. And you know what happened to them? Right? Yeah, <laughs> they were well, all they, they slain. Didn't, they didn't. They didn't discern properly. That was their problem. No. Moses didn't discern. He didn't have any discernment at all. All right? And, and he was rigid. And he... Uh, <laughs> so at the command of God, he slew them all, 23,000, in one day, for their idolatry and their fornication. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> 
but you know this is somebody who's repudiating the commandments of God. He doesn't understand his, the inherent values of the rule. Well, the the inherent values well, that that struck me as um, the uh, sort of the language of personalism, right? In other words, how the the um, uh, the commandments and religious practices are supposed to have a, a value value to me as a human person. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's it's not so much that it's it's uh, anything uh, objective, but it's it's what the commandments do for me. And if I don't understand what the um, uh, sixth commandment uh, does for me, or if it doesn't appeal to me. Uh, personally, then it doesn't have an inherent value. So we're back to personalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, the, it continues, or be in a concrete situation, adultery or fornication, which does not allow him or her to act differently and decide otherwise without further sin. <laughs> that means yeah, that, well, yeah. I'm here, you know, uh, we're living together, and uh, we, we're both sharing the same apartment, and we have uh, financial commitments, so it doesn't allow me to do anything else but commit more sin. This, this is a destruction of the natural law. The natural law, by its very nature, is something that does not admit exception in any case, and there is no uh, serious reason or excusing cause that would permit you to violate the natural law. Every student of moral theology knows that. And so, for example, lying is against the natural law. There is no reason why you can tell a lie. There is no excusing cause, despite whatever you you want to tell the teacher when you don't have your homework. There is no excusing cause for lying. And, And the same is true of everything that concerns sexual morality and marriage. It's all under the natural law and also the divine law, but natural law. Uh, the indissolubility of marriage is not only a divine law or a church law, it is natural law. And, and therefore, this, is, this goes against, it, it overthrows all of Catholic moral theology. That's what it does. So I'll let you continue. <laughs> you don't have a seminarian, so that's why, uh, you know... <laughs> no, I, I have I, I have I, I have the seminarians directly, but I've got to make it through uh, you know all of these paragraphs because in the second half of our show we're going we're going to get to the commentary. So I know that whenever I'm picking a quote, I'm I'm going past two or three things that I know you'd like to hold him to account for. But we just yeah. we have to be conscious of the time we have. So the the next two things I want to talk about the end of paragraph three o two right before paragraph three o three and the beginning of paragraph three o five. So the end of paragraph three o two. He says, on the basis of these convictions, I consider very fitting what many synod fathers wanted to affirm. Under certain circumstances, people find it very difficult to act differently. (laughs) Therefore, while upholding a general rule, it is necessary to recognize that responsibility with respect to certain actions or decisions is not the same in all cases. Pastoral discernment, while taking into account a person's properly formed conscience, must take responsibility for these situations. Even the consequences of actions taken are not necessarily the same in all cases. This theme continues at the top uh, of paragraph 305. He says, for this reason, 
a pastor cannot feel that it is sim- enough simply to apply moral laws to those living in irregular situations as if they were stones to throw at people's <laughs> lives. <laughs> Where have we heard that before? <laughs> yes, you can tell who wrote this. Um, well, the the uh, well that one paragraph in 302, which under certain circumstances, etc., uh, that is a, a masterpiece of code saying that uh, when it's too difficult for them to split up, which is true in, you know, for them in nearly all cases, they have to make payments on the boat. How can they split up? Because there's a, a two-income you know, situation here. How can they split up? That, uh, that the, the pastor has to take all of this into consideration. It, it is a masterpiece of, of doublespeak and of of code to say that you give them the, a blessing to continue in their fornication or in their adultery uh and and because it's not the same in all cases and then yes going to 305 that to apply to them the moral law is to throw stones at them <laughs> why do we have a moral law then <laughs> you know uh, to to apply, you, know, you could apply that to any law. That, that that to enforce the law is to throw stones at people. Mm-hmm. Well, why not just do away with the law altogether? And then we don't have to throw any stones at anybody. Well, the, the the other thing that struck me about that passage is um, it's situation ethics. It's uh, you know the 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 stuff that was so popular in the '60s was it Joseph Fuchs or something like that. And the the idea of a situational morality that you have to look at every um, uh, situation, all the circumstances, etc., and that there's there is no general rule to apply to every uh, uh, every situation that uh, you come across. So in effect, you uh, make up your own moral rules based uh, uh, about how to act based on the situation. You know, he—he, he, uh, I'm sure that that's something he was uh, um, marinated in in mm-hmm. uh, the '60s. Uh, there's something in 303. Sorry to do this to you, but it's very important. Uh, yet, conscience can do more than recognize that a given situation does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. That means those who commit adultery are going to hell. All right. It can also, conscience, that is, can also recognize with sincerity and honesty what is for now, what, what for now is the most generous response which can be given to God. In other words, I, I can't separate from my phony spouse, so the most generous thing I can do is stay with my phony spouse and uh, be faithful to the phony spouse. Uh, that's my best response that I can give to God right now. Uh, and... And it goes on, and come to see with a certain moral security, moral security, that it is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexity of one's limits, while while yet not fully the objective ideal. That's that's nearly blasphemous, isn't it? It is. That that God himself is telling you that you can live together, you can fornicate together, you can commit adultery together, and that's his will for you right now. That you are fulfilling the law of God, the will of God, 
which, as St. Thomas says, is to be meritorious. Every time you do the will of God, you, you do something meritorious. The, that, that is the will of God for you now that you would uh, engage in adulterous union and, and sexual relations. That is blasphemy. <laughs> and cries to will. heaven for, for vengeance. And, I mean, and it is was, blasphemy. The idea that there's that. a certain moral security to it. Yes, moral security. I mean, that, the, state, the statement is so outrageous. Yes, that I can decide, you know, well, we can't, because we have the payments on the boat to make, uh, we can't really split up. So I have moral security that this is what God wants for me right now, and this is my best response to him. It's, a, it's the most generous response. I was thinking if we applied this to the Old Testament, you're actually, you know, if it asks for two doves, then you just bring mm-hmm. one dove and see what happens, right? That's the yeah. most generous <laughs> response. I, I'm going to put one dove up the altar and see where the fire strikes. You know. Well, I think we should um, get Henry and Anne involved, too. <laughs> Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, you know, that their best, you know, this is their best response their to God. They're most generous. Their most generous yes. response. Their most generous <laughs> response to God. And they have moral security that this is what God wants for them, despite what the Pope says, you know. And, and uh, yeah, until it his comes mo- around to chopping her head off. Well, his most generous <laughs> majesty, then, your excellency. <laughs> yeah. um, I I wanted you, you. You had said both you and Father had alluded to the fact that the situation ethics essentially erodes the concept of sin, and we can see this later in paragraph three hundred five. Um, yeah. uh, it says, because of forms of conditioning and mitigating factors, it is possible that in an objective situation of sin, which may not be subjectively culpable or fully such, a person can be living in God's grace can love and can also grow in the life of grace and charity while receiving the church's help to this end. Discernment must help to find possible ways of responding to God and growing in the midst of limits. By thinking that everything is black and white, we sometimes close off the way of grace and of growth and discourage paths of sanctification which give glory to God. And the footnote to this says, In certain cases, this can include the help of the sacraments. Hence, I want to remind priests that the confessional must not be a torture chamber, but rather an encounter with the Lord's mercy. I would also Mm -hmm. point out that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. Who are they talking about? No one goes to confession in the Novus Ordo, and everyone (laughs) goes to communion. What torture chamber closet. are they talking about? And what, who's, who's perfect? Apparently everyone in the Novus Ordo is perfect because everyone goes to communion. Yes, yes. It's, it's all, uh, yeah, yeah, they're living in a dream world. Uh, and well, this is just, again, a, a silly way of putting it. You know, the, the confessional must not be a torture chamber. Like, you know, the, the evil priest that is uh, applying the law of God to people. Uh, that's all it means. And, yeah, the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, as if, you see, that's a false premise right away, that, you know, the, the Eucharist, that we're saying, the, the, the Catholics are saying, uh, you have to be perfect in order to receive the Eucharist. No, you have to be in the state of sanctifying grace. I mean, it's, it's, we're not saying that, you, like Jansenists, you have to be in a, per, a state of perfection. But that's the false, that's, you see, he throws out that red herring. But it's powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. Of course, that is true, as long as they're in the state of grace, as long as they have split up from their phony spouses. 
Yes, it is. And they they can get the grace to stay away from their phony spouses by receiving communion frequently. But otherwise, as St. Paul says, it's a, uh, you know, you, you eat and drink unto your own condemnation. Yes. If you're, uh, but he gives uh, a... Well, that's an ideal. Sorry. Again, Father, you're speaking of an ideal. Oh, that's yeah, the, that's right. <laughs> but he gives a whole, in a different, uh, I won't go back to it, but he gives a whole different interpretation of that verse. But we won't go into that now. <clears throat> um, well, good. the last thing that we're going to talk about today is in paragraph 312. Um, and I, again, I know I'm skipping over things His Excellency would Ugh. like to do, but we've got to get to the second half of, of today's uh, episode. So in paragraph three, you're turning this episode into a torture chamber for the bishop. I, I, yes, yes. I, I, I have all sorts of underlinings here that are very important. <laughs> <laughs> this this offers us a framework and a setting which help us avoid a cold bureaucratic morality in dealing with more sensitive issues. And the footnote in here, um, because out of a certain scrupulosity. Concealed beneath a zeal for fidelity to the truth, what a terrible thing. Some priests demand of penitence a purpose of amendment, so lacking in nuance, that it causes mercy to be obscured by the pursuit of a supposedly pure justice. For this reason, it is helpful to recall the teaching of Saint John Paul II, who stated that the possibility of a new fall should not prejudice the authenticity of the resolution. Oh, there are so many things messed up in that. Well, I'll let you go first, Father. You know, I, where, where, where do you, do you begin? begin? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, the idea of demanding a firm purpose of amendment uh, for, uh, from someone, that this is, this is uh, uh, cruel or somehow lacking in nuance, is uh, absolutely insane. And uh, it's the, the uh, purpose of amendment that is, is uh, necessary for uh, the sacrament, as it were, to work. Uh, that's something that has to be uh, present. And then to denounce it as scrupulosity, um, and, and to denounce it as a vice, I mean, that is uh, uh, <laughs> that's something that's beneath contempt. You know, yeah, so you're, like, like a problem you have. You see, it's like a personal problem. I'm scrupulous, so I have to, you know, ask <laughs> you to to please split up with your girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, a purpose of amendment is necessary for the validity of the sacrament because it is an essential part of the contrition. Yeah. So it's not being scrupulous to say that you have to stop fornicating, and it's not scrupulous to say that you have to give up the occasions of fornication. This is standard moral theology that you would. I mean, you could read it in the books that are like Joan, that is commonly available from publishers. Standard, standard moral theology that all seminarians learn, no matter how smart or, or they are. They, they all learn this. This is so basic to the confessional, and he's, he's reducing this to scrupulosity, as if the priest has got personal problems or he's nervous or something. You know, and then what what uh, you know, John Paul II says that the possibility of a new fall should not prejudice the authenticity of the resolution, that is in itself true. In other words, if yes. somebody really and truly says, yes, I do intend to do this, you believe them, and yes, they might fall again, and that's why the sacrament is there for them again. St. Alphonsus talks about this, that you should absolve them if, if you have every reason to believe that they are sincere in their resolution. 
they may fall again. And that's why there's confessions every week or many times a week because people fall again. And and so, but to cite it as that in in you know supporting the idea that you should not put upon them the purpose of amendment is again something absolutely contrary to everything the Catholic Church has ever ever said or taught. And and it is to raise the hand of absolution over something that is nothing but filth of fornication and adultery that's all it is i mean that that is so perverted that 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 statement and it twists so many things but very very carefully it's like the work of the devil that that paragraph because it takes truth and it and it makes it subservient to the error that they want to to put over on people yeah it it uh, uh, shifts the problem uh to the priest and uh, by portraying him as uh, scrupulous, and not only that, by being um, uh, somewhat double, because he he is concealing his scrupulosity uh, under under zeal, and that um, he is then he's obscuring mercy uh, uh, by insisting on purpose of amendment, and then citing the. What is in and of itself, as uh, Bishop Sanborn said, the the, uh, the possibility of new fall should not pre- prejudice the authenticity of the resolution. That is a, a sort of a reformulation of something that's standard. But to use that as kind of a proof for the uh, foregoing statement to say for this reason is helpful to recall. It's uh, it is it's diabolical and it's twisted. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, listeners, that's just chapter eight, and we are more than an hour into today's episode, and we're, we're going to turn now to the, the re- reception of this document, and it's been, it's been read. I think that's one of the things about the internet, um, Your Excellency and Father, was part of the reason we were able to do a show on Bergoglio the day after he was uh, elected or selected or however we, we want to put him that uh, all this information exists and then it's dumped out into cyberspace and you can just harvest it. Uh, And a lot of people have read the text already, Uh, everyone from the New York times to, to La Stampa. And and that's who I want to start with. I know we have some other, uh, some other quotes in, in our show plan for today, but I'd like us to go to the La Stampa coverage of Cardinal Schornborn's apparently embarrassing press conference in which he was subjected to a number of, I, I looked at these questions and I thought, are these a series of rhetorical questions? But these are all questions that were asked at the press conference. So during the press conference, which was also attended by the secretary of the synod, Cardinal Lorenzo Baldessari, and the married couple Franco Miano and Gi- Giuseppina De Simone, Cardinal Schornborn responded to some objections that may be made with regard to the apostolic exhortation. This constant principle of inclusion is naturally a cause of concern to some, isn't it speaking in favor of relativism? Doesn't the constantly mentioned concept of mercy become permissivism? Where this is the is clarity question, with re- right? Yeah, these this are questions. Question? Okay. Uh, these, these are all. It seems like this is all. These are all rhetorical questions. Where is Sounds the like clarity? Questions we would ask. Right. Yeah. <laughs> these are these are from the reporters. Where is the clarity mm-hmm. with regard to limits that are not to be exceeded and situations that should objectively be defined as irregular, sinful? 
Does this exhortation not favor a sort of laxism and everything goes sort of attitude? Isn't Jesus's mercy often a firm and demanding mercy? These are, these, these are, these are from the reporters. The cardinal went through a number of passages in Francis's text and highlighted the quote-unquote typically Ignatian approach of the pope who is an expert pedagogue as well as the reference to St. Thomas Aquinas, who attributes such an important role to passions, while modern morality is often Puritan, discredits or neglects them. It is here that the title of the Pope's exhortation finds its fullest appreciation, Amoris Laetitia. According to Jornborn, this entire document is profoundly Thomistic. I can systematically prove this. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh. <laughs> This is the thing, Your Excellency, you've been pointing out, and Father has, throughout today, just in Chapter 8, that it's here for anyone who of, of average intelligence can read, permission is being given. And then this press conference from reporters who have read this, they can read it too, and they're asking all of these relevant questions. Isn't Jesus' mercy often a firm and demanding mercy? This is from a reporter. Yeah. That's why I say it's an insult. I mean, they picked up immediately on the fact that it's all in code and it's all talking around the, the central elephant in the room, and everybody knows what he means, but he's not stating it. And and it is insulting to people uh, to to put out something like this, among other things. Also, mostly insulting to God. But yes, they, they hit on the, the yes. Because they want answers. They don't want gobbledygook. They want answers. What about this? What about that? As everybody does. They go straight for the meat of the thing. They don't want to just reproduce these stupid paragraphs that say nothing. Except in code, everybody knows what they mean. Mm. Uh, the, the, uh, the next reaction I want to look at is from um, America Magazine, and it's a, an article titled top 10 takeaways from Amoris Laetitia by James Martin, SJ. Well, he's and sort he of goes, the, the uh, media Jesuit. You, you run into him, um, uh, him writing about an awful lot of things. He's a very visible, uh, very visible character. Well, and for those who might not know, father, can you tell people what America magazine is in relation to the Jesuits and orthodoxy? Well, if, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think the the, the Talk about a dif- difficulty is with a oxymoron. <laughs> it's it's the uh, national magazine, um, a national a supposedly religious magazine run by the uh, Jesuits, and um, it had it existed before the council as a, uh, a Jesuit publication that was uh, more popular. It wasn't a theological journal or anything like that. And uh, after Vatican II, it became uh, one of the uh, uh, most um, uh, liberal publications, we could say, along with the National Catholic Reporter in the United States, that all sorts of crazy things appeared in it. So, and, and that has continued. So one of the, uh, the top ten takeaways, and again, some of the points I don't want to address because they're addressing chapters we haven't had a chance to cover in today's episode, but he does reference the, in, in point seven, traditional teachings on marriage are affirmed, but the church should not burden people with unrealistic expectations. 
marriage is between one man and one woman and is indissoluble, and same-sex marriage is not considered marriage, the church continues to hold out an invitation to healthy marriage. At the same time, the church has often foisted upon people an artificial theological ideal of marriage removed from people's everyday lives. I, I just... An artificial is, theological yeah. ideal of marriage removed from people's everyday lives. And the, well, is that yeah, actually but, in there? <laughs> uh, in paragraph, well, this is par- his comment, right? This is, uh, but it's. I mean, his, his takeaway is no. He, yes, well, yeah. that, that that quote, he's pulling that quote from the text. Artificial theological ideal of marriage, but I think he's he's somewhat constituting, you know, the thought yes. from that. Yes. Well, it's the same theme of uh, that that uh, indissolubility of marriage is an ideal that most people cannot achieve, and that we should not burden people with the idea of achieving that ideal. And as long as they have some elements of marriage, uh, we can work with that. Yeah, in fact, the document itself in 36 says, at times we have also proposed a far too abstract and almost artificial theological ideal of marriage far removed from the concrete situations and practical possibilities of real families. Mm -hmm. This excessive idealization, especially when we have failed to inspire trust in God's grace, has not helped to make marriage more desirable and attractive, but quite the opposite. So in other words, the theology, um, the Catholic theology of marriage has uh, uh, rendered it uh, repellent. I think that's our our takeaway from that. So... Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this 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 dry ideal. Well, and here mm-hmm. here's a note for you, Your Excellency. Uh, he quotes from in this same point number seven. He quotes paragraph two hundred two. To that end, seminarians and priests need to be better trained to understand the complexities of people's married lives. Ordained ministers often lack the training needed to deal with the complex problems currently facing families. And people I'll just aren't properly trained. <laughs> yes, I have to. I'll put that in. I'll tell Father Fleece, who teaches moral theology, that he's got to read this document and, you know, teach the seminarians. Um, the, um, but this might be a good time to talk about the ideal of marriage in St. Luke. Our Lord said, Everyone that putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And he that marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. That's the ideal, I guess, you see, but no one can live up to that. And in St. Matthew, he says, But I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife, excepting for the cause of fornication, maketh her to commit adultery, and he that shall marry her that is put away committeth adultery. So, but those are just ideals. Uh, you know, well, and I would say, your Excellency, as, as paragraph 122 says, you're putting forth a tremendous burden uh, yes. to, to, to live up to something yeah. like that. Yes. So I wonder if you and, would think that uh, our Lord is among those ordained ministers who lack the training to deal with the complex problems <laughs> currently facing yes, families. Yes, or perhaps scrupulosity. <laughs> scrupulosity. And, uh, throwing yeah, stones uh, at people. Yeah. For for you know, and this was in response to the Pharisees who were challenging him on it. The Pharisee says, "Well, if that's the way it is, you know, how, who would ever get married?" <laughs> And but then, then he, uh, he the Pharisees were challenging him, and that, this is in the context of where he said that uh, it, Moses essentially tolerated your your uh, you know, divorce, uh, the bill of divorce in the Old Testament, but no more; it will no longer be tolerated. 
So it, this burden uh, is placed upon us by none other than our blessed Lord. And St. Paul explains all that in Ephesians, and he, and he says that the, the marriage bond is a, an image of the bond between Christ and his church. And that's why by divine law it is in, indissoluble. So St. Paul also places the burden upon us. So, um, uh, so but yes, but that's it's Lutheran. You see, it's the, the God does not expect us to to obey the commandments. It's too hard. Well, I mean, it's a good time to to start celebrating Luther. We're coming up on that anniversary, uh, yeah. Your Excellency. So we we want to be observant of that. Um, the next uh, bit of coverage comes from the National Catholic Reporter, and National Catholic Reporter ran a bunch of stories. Um, I want to look at the the first one, and I just uh, this quote I think sort of summarizes the the perspective that a lot of the press are taking. And it says, in a radical departure from recent pastoral practice, Pope Francis has asked the world's Catholic clergy to let their lives become, quote-unquote, wonderfully complicated by embracing God's grace at work in the difficult and sometimes unconventional situations families and marriages face, even at risk of obscuring doctrinal norms. So doctrine now becomes a norm. And mm-hmm. we can see that right here in, the, in, in this tight sentence. We can see this is how people are reading this document. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have to become complicated. That means we have to obscure the doctrine, obscure the moral law, in order to permit people to commit fornication and adultery. That's the translation of that. And that's under the, the title of complication, to be wonderfully complicated. I mean, who are and they the, trying the, to kid? Yeah, but it's the um, uh, National Catholic Reporter, as you say, nailed it in a sentence. You know what's what's going on here, and the, uh, it, it, at the risk of obscuring doctrinal norms, not merely at the risk, but with the uh, full expectation of obscuring doctrinal norms. Yes. Yes. The uh, the next uh, National Catholic Reporter uh, story, um, well, the, the third one in, in our sequence, is called Francis Challenges the Church. Francis Challenges the Church. And the quote is, um, some on the left will complain that he did not change the rules, but Pope Francis is calling for something more radical than changing from rigid conservative rules to lax liberal ones goes on, Pope Francis is proposing a model of church leadership and pastoral activity that is modeled on Jesus, who was not afraid to reach out to sinners and the lost to engage them as people in the often fraught circumstances of their lives. Francis is calling the church to a deeper conversion than a mere change in the rules. And I think they're really, they're onto something there, something much deeper than a mere change in the rules. He's right, or whoever this person is, is, is right. Sentiment of, of rules in general, it, it's to it puts conscience over law essentially. Uh, that and that's Protestant, right down to the to the bone marrow. That is Protestant to put conscience over law. That your that the that uh, your your conscience concerning your situation outweighs the objective law. Uh, correctly perceives that. Uh, 
this document was intended to be and is a, a giant uh, shift of uh, perspective that he he's taking what uh, taking an idea uh, when it comes to to rules and doctrine and the objective moral law that um, many people on the so-called left in the Novus Ordo Church had, and that um, conservatives, the maybe 20% or, or, or left, rejected. And he's taking this, and now he's universalizing it through this um, uh, through this particular document. So it's a, it's it's a whole shift of um, whole shift of perspective that he's going for uh, universally. In other words, this is supposed to apply everywhere. And uh, I suppose woe betide the um, Catholic and Beretta-wearing diocesan neocon priest who uh, tries to go against these um, uh, the, the norms, as it were, that Francis has laid down. You talk about strictness of rules. These rules will be enforced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Father, yeah, Father, Retro's, Father Retro's days are numbered. Yeah. Yes, but don't forget, Father Retro is mostly interested in bells and incense and pretty vestments. Uh, they'll go along with this. I don't think they have any backbone in them to to stand up to this at all. Uh, you know, that's a whole perhaps a whole other subject. But uh, no, it, it's they want that niche of living in a, a type of dream world within the Novus Ordo, and uh, they will. They will have to go along with it. What if, uh, you know, if Father Bob or Father Chuck's people come over to your parish, Father Retro's parish, and they're divorced and remarried, they're receiving communion over there, what, are you going to refuse them communion? <laughs> and, you know, well, you as know you they know, move to your parish? Some, as you know, Your Excellency, there's some people who always refuse communion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> Speaking speaking of which, I mean, you want to talk about making a mess. Uh, the SSPX now has faculties basically indefinitely granted. I mean, what, what's what's Father Bob going to do to stop people from crossing over to to get valid confessions? Now, uh, there's there's a real mess going on there at the top. Yes, uh, and, and another part of this document, you have the fact that all of this happens in the internal forum. That means you you go to the priest either in confession or in some sort of private counseling. And he gives you the okay for adultery or fornication, and he gives you the okay for the, the the communion wafer, and for being integrated into the parish, you know, for leading the choir and so forth, and uh, that that holds good for for all the parishes. So they will have to observe that too. They will have to say, well, you're welcome to lead the choir in our parish too, and and uh, or do whatever, uh, and. Uh, you can be integrated. This is this is a complete burning down of the church's moral principles. It's all it is. It's a, a burning to the ground all of the church's moral principles that it has always held from time immemorial. It is against sacred scripture. It is against the teaching of the church. Uh, it is nothing less than a, you know. It is, it is a monumental document, more than even Vatican II itself inasmuch as it destroys all classic norms of Catholic moral theology. This might be the Franken-baby of Vatican II. (laughs) 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 Uh, The 
and well, maybe the we should get the into the the, uh, <laughs> the brides of Frankenstein and wonder if they're validly married and all that. So might, yeah, they might live in a, a situation, an irregular situation, and we can do discernment as to regard to the brides of Frankenstein, and and come up with some solution for them, a pastoral solution, and you know. We don't want to be scrupulous, though. Don't forget. <laughs> now, the the other thing that, that I was thinking of is um, the uh, going back for some reason to read one of my initial articles on on uh, Bergoglio. Uh, there was a comment on th- the uh, interviews that uh, Bergoglio had given to that uh, Spadaro to Civiltà Cattolica. And uh, he said all sorts of crazy things, uh, you know, who am I to judge, etc. The uh, commentator was a um, uh, liberal who regularly wrote for National Catholic Reporter, Father Richard Rohr. And he said that uh, what's significant about these uh, remarks from Bergoglio is that, well, the Pope said them, and that's like a bell that cannot be unrung. Uh, once he says something, it goes into the uh, uh, public record, as it were, and people can point to it as uh, an authentication for uh, this, that, or the other point. Well, I was thinking of that juxtaposed with um, the Samoris Letizia, and uh, how could a neocon really, uh, what could he f- foresee if he sees problems in this uh, as a way to fix it and the thing is that if uh, you really can't because the the bell has been rung the horse is now out of the stable uh, that the person who is supposedly the holy father has has uh, uh, changed the 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 paradigm and changed the perspective for everything has has trashed these um rules and objective moral principles it told you to discern and uh, uh, allowed for second marriages and sacraments, you can't unring that bell now. No, it's set in stone. Yeah, you run into another continuity problem. Yes, you do. That's why we're say to Vacantists that <laughs> all of this garbage and nonsense that comes out of the mouth of this man and, and people like him uh, do not enter into the canon of of Catholic teaching. That it is all just garbage and nonsense. That's all it is, and it will not take its place side by side with the magnificent works of Catholic teaching, particularly the encyclicals of the popes of the past 200 years and, and beyond all the Catholic yeah. teaching. Council of Trent uh, is that this, if, if you recognize this man as the pope, all of this horrid and filthy doctrine has to take its place side by side with Pius XI's encyclical Casti Canubii, which is a masterpiece of, of the Catholic doctrine concerning Christian marriage. It, it literally means chaste marriage, Casti Canubii. And as, as we were talking about before the show, this should be entitled Neither Chaste Nor Married. Uh, and and uh, you know it's just the opposite uh, of of what he wrote concerning the sacredness of marriage, and other popes who have taught you know it's just it's a treasure that has been just just squandered and and thrown to to dogs, and and we cannot permit this to to stand side by side with the teaching of the Catholic Church. 
it, it is something that belongs in the garbage can. And, well, and uh, it belongs. It should be burned together with the teaching, the the documents of Vatican II. I was saying to the seminarians today that bonfire, if I am ever elected the Pope, uh, the bonfire <laughs> that is that is going to be <laughs> taking place in St. Peter's uh, Square will be so intense that you can see it from a satellite photo. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so the flames. This is one more thing that can be thrown on the flames. I mean, this stuff has to go. This cannot be associated with Roman Catholicism. This is a scandal. Well, it's all embedded to, to your to your point, Your Excellency. That that quote that we read earlier about the uh, that the, the children could be endangered by people living as brother and sister. I went back to the the footnote. That's in the Acta Apostolici Sedis. So it's embedded within this the, the sort of magisterium of the of the Novus Ordo Church. So it isn't yep. just the documents of Vatican II. It's 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 like a, a disease. It's it's everywhere. Um, the the next well, article. Well, uh, that's the Vatican II, the post-Vatican II Acta. That's what you right. the acts of, that, of you, Vatican II. You were saying II what, what, what's the, what's the neo what are the neocons going to do when it, it's in their Acta? It, 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 yes. You know. Yes. So, this will um, go into the Octa too. This is a, it's going up on the internet and it's going into the Octa. The that means the official teaching and record of of pontifical acts. And where is your continuity? If you lose continuity, you lose the Catholic Church. Well, don't worry. Where is it? Cardinal Burke has an answer for you. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> the National Catholic the National Catholic Reporter then had reactions to uh, the Pope's reflection. The first one is from John Gehrig, who's the Catholic program director at Faith in Public Life. And his quote, Pope Francis is driving a nail in the coffin of fortress Catholicism by urging church leaders to build, bri- to build bridges, not walls. The document is both hopeful and a powerful rebuke to those who put judgment before grace. The Pope knows that doctrine is most alive when it is a doctrine in the streets, walking into the community, uh, into the complexity and messiness of real life. Um, then um, the next well, that is, is true. From, that, that's a that's a genuine assessment of it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. The next <laughs> one is from Francis D. Bernardo, the executive director of New Ways Ministry. Pope's joy of love is not very joyful for LGBT Catholics. Pope Francis's <laughs> latest document, Amoris Laetitia, does not inspire joy in LGBT Catholics and their supporters. As far as sexual orientation and gender identity issues are concerned, the Pope's latest apostolic exhortation reiterates church formulas, which show that the Vatican has yet to learn from the experiences and faith lives of so many LGBT church members or their supporters. Now, that's a fair point, Your Excellency. Maybe it was um, a bridge too far to try to deal with homosexuals in this document. It was enough to deal with uh, the divorced and remarried. Well, I can say is he needs some seminarians to go through the document that was highlighted. Remember that whatever situation they're in, remember I pointed that out. Right, right. That, that so that opens up the LGBT QRX XYZ. I think you want, I, Your Excellency. I think you want to keep him away from the seminarians. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yes. but, uh, you know, well, you know, uh, the, um, uh, but yes, that's in there. He missed it. He did not read his document. 
And it's in there. The, all of the reasoning that you could use for fornication and adultery, you could use for that. Because in another part, uh, he, he says effectively, this is not a quote, but that the essence of marriage is love. And that, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a, a contract in the, in the, as it is in the classical and da- Catholic um, teaching. But it's where there is love. I mean, that's the, 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 it, it's a, a union of love. And, you know, that, you know, you know, there was a recently a, a, a lady arrested for uh, fornicating with her dog. You know, you, that's a union of love, you know, right? The, it opens it to everything, everything. And uh, so, you know, he doesn't understand how much this destroys Catholic moral principles. It, it burns down the whole house. It's you. It's it's. It was always interesting to me that you find that among people who are of a um, uh, liberal slash progressive uh, mindset in the uh, in the modernist church, that they don't read documents like this closely and realize how radical they are. Uh, that uh, happened, uh, you know, time and time again with some of the things Ratzinger would say, that um, because his his uh, uh, language was sometimes uh, obscure, uh, uh, people didn't realize that it 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 uh, in fact supported uh, their program. So that's mm-hmm. obviously the case with this guy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps my what might be the most perspicacious reaction of the day, in my mind, Your Excellency, comes from the New York Times. So on your side of the pond, this uh, a series of quotes. Uh, so the New Catholic Truth is the title of this article in the New York Times. And so it speaks, I'm just going to read three paragraphs from here. The first one is, Roman Catholicism remains officially united. The church has a conservative wing, a liberal wing, and a low-grade civil war, but the church's left and right have found ways to coexist, and since the 1970s, any kind of rupture has seemed relatively unlikely. But there is now, but there is also now a new papal teaching, a teaching in favor of the truce itself. That is, the post-1960s separation between doctrine and pastoral practice now has a papal imprimatur, rather than being a state of affairs that popes were merely tolerating for the sake of unity. Indeed, for Pope Francis, that separation is clearly a hoped-for source of renewal, revival, and revitalization, rather than something that renewal or revival might enable the church to gradually transcend. Again, this is not the clear change of doctrine, the proof of concept for other changes that many liberal bishops and cardinals sought, But it is an encouragement for innovation on the ground, for the de facto changes that more sophisticated liberal Catholics believe will eventually render certain uncomfortable doctrines as dead letters without the need for a formal repudiation from the top. A slippage that follows from this lack of confidence is one of the most striking aspects of the Pope's letter. What the Church considers serious sin becomes mere irregularity. What the Church considers a commandment becomes a mere ideal. What the church once stated authoritatively, it now proffers tentatively, in tones laced with self-effacement and self-critique. That's the perfect. New York Times. The New York Times. Uh, that, that's such a great summary uh, of it. Uh, yes, and you know, it should be pointed out that 
uh, all of this business of discernment and and uh, irregularity and so forth has been practiced for a long, long time with regard to birth control. That you would go to the priest and say, I'm practicing artificial birth control, and he would say, well, use your conscience. And this is just an extension of it into divorce and remarriage and fornication. Uh, so uh, that that should be pointed out, and he's right, that this was something tolerated, quote-unquote tolerated, it was encouraged, but, you know, under the table. Now it has achieved the form of a document, and this idea of separating the pastoral from the doctrinal is the the, the path that, that needs to be taken, so that people can just, as he says, you know, put the the doctrinal uh, on, on a bookshelf and to collect dust, whereas the pastoral really is the the effective doctrine that that needs to be followed. Yes, he's absolutely right. It was, that was a masterpiece uh, paragraph. Uh, yes, I, I uh, certainly second that, and uh, the writer was very, very perceptive. This um, point was, was made by another um, writer for the New York Times in... Um, I think last fall at some point, Ross, uh, I think it's Dutot or uh, Duto, something like that, on the um, uh, op-ed page of the New York Times. That he, he talked about the Synod and his analysis of that and said that if it um, uh, comes down to something like this, what you have is, is the, the doctrine is in fact put on the shelf and it's it's some sort of an... Uh, uh, ideology that theoretically everyone uh, adheres to. He said, you know, theoretically the um, uh, heads of of, of communist China, uh, you know, would still talk about Das Kapital and consider themselves to be communists, etc. But the reality on the ground is that it's it's, uh, now the country is sort of a uh, Wild West um, uh, uh, capitalist uh, totalitarian state. So that you you have the uh, uh, ideology uh, is in place, but the reality is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's it's what very is. perceptive, very very perceptive. Yeah, I think you covered that uh, Ross Dutat piece uh, in a Francis Watch, um, Father. Yes. Um, yeah. So now we've got the the pushback. We've got uh, Cardinal Burke uh, authoring an op-ed called Amoris Laetitia and the Constant Teaching and Practice of the Church. Well, those two things that are opposed. Um, So I'm just going to read a few quotes from Cardinal Burke's op-ed. He says, the only key to the correct interpretation, (laughs) correct interpretation, of Amoris Laetitia is the constant teaching of the church and her discipline that safeguards and fosters this teaching. Pope Francis makes clear from the beginning that the post-synodal apostolic exhortation is not an act of the magisterium. In other words, the Holy Father is proposing what he personally believes is the will of Christ for his church, but he does not intend to impose his point of view, nor to condemn those who insist on what he calls a more rigorous pastoral care. People like me is what he's thinking, I'm sure. Uh, What is more, as noted above, a document which is the fruit of the Synod of Bishops must always be read in the light of the purpose of the Synod itself, namely to safeguard and foster what the Church has always taught and practiced in accord with her teaching. Finally, I remember the discussion which surrounded the publication of the conversations between blessed Pope Paul VI 
in Jean Guiton in 1967, the concern was the danger that the faithful would confuse the Pope's personal reflections with official church teaching. While the Roman pontiff has personal reflections, which are interesting and can be inspiring, the church must be ever attentive to point out that their publication is a personal act and not an exercise of the papal magisterium. Otherwise, those who do not understand the distinction or do not want to understand it will present such reflections and even anecdotal remarks of the Pope as declarations of a change in the church's teaching to the great confusion of the faithful. Such confusion is harmful to the faithful and weakens the witness of the church as the body of Christ in the world. So this is the Michael Davies uh, defense, Father Chikata. Uh It's not official. So it doesn't. <laughs> no, it's not mm-hmm. official. The, the, uh, when I read that, my jaw dropped. That how could you say that it's, it's uh, just a personal opinion? It's an apostolic exhortation going out supposedly to the whole church. But mm-hmm. it, it, it's, um, uh, it's nonsense. Even uh, the right away, Rorathe uh, Chaley picked up on this. And uh, they did a little piece a couple of days ago called Three Tiny Notes on Amoris Laetitia, uh, completely poo-pooing this idea, saying that it is uh, the uh, that in fact it is uh, intended to be teaching, and that uh, Burke dismissing it uh, by saying it's not a big deal and not magisterially relevant is simply not true. This is Rorate. The present Pope and his successors will not act as if it were not magisterially relevant. And bishops on the ground will certainly invoke it in their own magisterial pronouncements. It will certainly have its place in future editions of Denzinger and any future revision of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, and then he <laughs> says that... Uh, More like Denzinger. Well, Denzinger. Yeah, <laughs> I have paragraph three right here. Can I read it? Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Since, quote, time is greater than space, unquote, whatever he means by that, yeah. I would make it clear that not all discussions of doctrinal, moral, or pastoral issues need to be settled by interventions of the magisterium. He's not excluding this as magisterium. He's just saying not all discussions of doctrinal, moral, or pastoral issues, pastoral issues need to be settled by interventions of the magisterium which is of course is false because Mm -hmm. all of those things depend obviously on the magisterium Uh, unity of teaching and practice is certainly necessary in the church but this does not preclude various ways of interpreting some aspects of that teaching or drawing certain consequences from it you know so there there's interpretation and discernment you know uh, and uh, but you know he does not exclude this. Where is he getting that idea that he's excluding it? He's just saying I'm not uh, intending to. Uh, uh, he says uh, that not all discussions of doctrinal moral pastors need to be settled by interventions of the magisterium. Now, he's not excluding it. He's just saying that that this is uh, you know uh, not all. All of them require an intervention of the magisterium. That's all he's saying. Yeah. Uh, for Burke to read into it that he's therefore reducing it to his personal reflections, like a, you know, something that he might say to to his friends at at the dinner table, uh, is perfectly absurd. Uh, it is uh, it is a teaching to the whole church, and uh, it is uh, certainly what it would go under in normal times. Uh, 
uh, would have the same authority as an encyclical. It, it, mm-hmm. it is magisterium. It, it is, uh, you know, it's it's not just personal reflections. It's not a book that he wrote. This is these are my personal reflections on marriage. Well, the 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 other thing that um, Rati came up with uh, subsequently, there's another post. Uh, Amoris Laetitia's non-magisterial question mark not so fast. Uh, in a um, uh, introductory comment to this this uh, post, the Rati writer said, um, relevant to this question is Pope Francis's landmark speech on decentralization that he delivered on October 17 last year. During his speech, in which he addressed the Synod Fathers, Francis made it clear at the end of the synodal process he intended to pronounce authoritatively, quote, the synodal process culminates in listening to the Bishop of Rome, who is called upon to pronounce as pastor and teacher of all Christians, not based on his personal conviction, but as a supreme witness of the faith of the whole church, of the guarantor of obedience and the conformity of the church to the will of God, the gospel of Christ, and the tradition of the church. Mm-hmm. That's Francis yes. who's saying that. So the thing like is that, that Burke, Cardinal Burke's um, uh, attempt to wiggle out of it is uh, uh, ridiculous. You know, he had, Francis clearly said that this is what he intended to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is so, the, I mean, the final statement uh, from the, the Senate. Yeah, and, and, and it was mentioned throughout the Senate that, well, the only official thing, as it were, that's binding is the apostolic exhortation at the end. And that's something that comes, according to their synodal rules, from the Pope. Mm-hmm. So voila. Yes. So no, that's just another attempt to to hide from from the the monster, yeah. the monster being sadivacantism for them. That yeah. if they say this is departure from Catholic doctrine, which of course it is, then there's one thing to conclude, and that is he's a heretic, and that he is teaching the whole church false doctrine, which is contrary to the indefectibility of the Catholic Church. Therefore, he cannot be the Pope. Yeah. I see. So they they will do anything, say anything, the most absurd things, in order to hide from that conclusion. So I think yeah. Father Chicotta, you're saying is the Michael Davies defense doesn't work in this in this case, or, or it does. It never no, it, it, it doesn't because he's he's uh, um, uh, he's very clear uh, that it's 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 something that he intends to be authoritative. And that it's it's uh, you know we look at it and it is um, uh, ridiculous to to maintain otherwise. The the um, funny thing is that of course he's picking and choosing what he always accused the left of. And a National Catholic reporter uh, had a, um, a funny cartoon uh, about this. They have a little the Francis the comic strip. Uh, here we look at Francis the comic reality, but they actually have a comic strip. Uh, and so in the comic strip, there's Burke talking to the press about saying, well, you know, it's it's not really personal in the teaching. Uh, it's just the Pope's personal opinion, and we're not really bound by it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's done with the press, and uh, Francis is walking by and says, hey, Raymond, it's time for lunch. Uh, welcome to ca- cafeteria Catholicism. 
Well, and I think for anyone who's paying attention, the ironic byline that, that finishes that article is uh, Cardinal Raymond Burke is the patron of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, uh, i.e. this guy got bounced and demoted, and uh, he's off on some island in the middle of the Mediterranean. That's how much his authority uh, matters. Is, is, no, you know, he's, he's alive and well in Rome. That's where they are now. So he's, he lives in Rome. Right, but this yeah. idea that, that, that Burke is the, – the pushback for the conservatives, I mean, it, it's somewhat laughable considering what his position is. The last mm-hmm. uh, reflection, the last reaction I want to look at today, Your Excellency and Father, is from Roberta DiMattei, who I think has made an uh, – he has the record for Francis Watch appearances. I think he's appeared in almost every Francis Watch, helping to make sure that people don't consider Sedevacantism. And the title of his article on Rorate is – the post-Synod exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, first reflections on a catastrophic document. Um, he says, what is obvious is this. The prohibition to receive communion for the divorced and remarried is no longer absolute. The Pope does not authorize, as a general rule, communion to the divorced, but neither does he prohibit it. Extramarital sexual union is not considered intrinsically illicit, but inasmuch as it is an act of love, accessible according to the circumstances. Cardinal Casper had asked some questions. The exhortation of Morris Letizia offers an answer. Open the door to the divorced and remarried, canonize situation ethics, and begin a process of normalization of all common law cohabitations. Yes, that's uh, exactly what it is. And what, uh, what is his solution? His solution comes from Cardinal Athanasius, uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. Non possumus. I will not accept an obfuscated speech nor a skillfully masked backdoor to a profanation of the sacrament of marriage and Eucharist. Likewise, I will not accept a mockery of the sixth commandment of God. I prefer to be ridiculed and persecuted rather than to accept ambiguous texts and insincere methods. I prefer the crystalline image of Christ, the truth, rather than the image of the fox ornamented with gemstones. For I know whom I have believed. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, no, there's a... There's a high uh, uh, ecclesiastical official for you. I think he's an auxiliary bishop in Kazakhstan. Right. Yeah, so he's, he's rallying yeah. around his, his hardcore conservative uh, resistor. Uh-huh. Non, non posumus is uh, De Matei's answer, Your Excellency. Well, I mean, is he the Pope, and is this an apostolic exhortation, uh, you know, uh, is, or is this a recognize and resist? I guess it's recognize and resist. Huh? Well, recognize here, and ignore. Dematei's um, out is that considering that the new document belongs to the non-infallible ordinary magisterium, <laughs> it is to be hoped... Uh, so is he kind of saying that the bishops in union with the Pope aren't going to teach this or something? Uh, it's difficult to figure out what exactly he means. Well, that might be the space is bigger than time. Are we in a science fiction thing? What is the non-infallible magist- ordinary magisterium, Father? Is that, is, that, is that a fictional idea? Well, the thing is that uh, 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 there is something called the authentic magisterium. Uh, which is the ordinary, let's say, day-to-day uh, teaching of a pope, and then his teaching in certain documents, actually like this. And um, these have to be um, received with religious assent, etc. Uh, but 
the theologians who speak about a, 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 a case of authentic uh, magisterium error in the authentic magisterium see it as something uh, that um, uh, they never give an example, and uh, it's obviously they foresee it as something extremely rare. They don't expect, uh, you know, what, 262 pages uh, from the Pope to belong to the non-infallible ordinary magisterium. It's, it's got a little, uh, you know, a, a little more weight uh, than a, a uh, some sort of uh, small inadvertent error in a... Um, uh, pontifical decree. Would you say that's accurate, Your Excellency? Yes, I mean, strictly speaking, is authentic magisterium as it is opposed to universal, ordinary, and and extraordinary is strictly speaking subject to error and subject to reform. But uh, yes, they're not. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're, I mean, I defy anyone to find an error. <laughs> in any of the authentic teaching of any pope that that has ever been made you know it it is uh you know it's the the ordinary teaching of the church and we have to listen to it as as children listen to a teacher and uh it it's a mortal sin to dissent from it but um uh this is uh this is just something totally loaded with error it's it's incredible you know and uh but you you can't just throw it out. You can't just say, well, we don't pay attention to that. That's, that's something contrary to Catholic Catholic teaching and practice. Sure, because the Pope is supposed to uh, the, the Pope is uh, supposed to have at least a, a certain uh, guidance in terms of I think what they call universal providence when he uh, makes these uh, statements that strictly aren't part of the uh, extraordinary magisterium. Mm-hmm. Well, I, that's all we've got time for today, Your Excellency and Father. Thank you for uh, a marathon uh, episode uh, on our flagship show. Um, again, we acted outside of the authority of Francis Watch uh, in doing this episode because we had to just deal with this document. And as the bishop alluded to, listeners, we may have to come back and continue to dissect this document because it needs to be exposed for what it is. And we may do that on future episodes uh, of Francis Watch or in a separate special episode. Your mm-hmm. Excellency and Father, any closing thoughts? Uh, Father, I'll let you go first. Well, as I say, once again, it's what we expected. And it's going to be a long uh, slog for uh, us to go through this and to figure out all of the consequences. But I think that the consequences of this document are truly earth-shaking and uh, that um, we've only begun to hear the rumblings about it. Uh, That's one point. The other is uh, it will be interesting how this uh, document uh, uh, and its analysis plays out uh, vis-a-vis the uh, ongoing reconciliation process of the Society of St. Pius X. So uh, it, that will be something to watch as well, the, the uh, reactions that come from that. Yes, just reiterating that, uh, as I said, it is the uh, burning of the uh, burning down of the house of moral teaching, uh, all of its principles, which are the most important aspects of, of Catholic moral teaching, the principles, the natural law, uh, the repudiation of situation ethics, 
uh, all of those things that the Catholic Church has so valiantly stood for throughout the ages and has never compromised. Uh, this this is destroying the whole thing. Also, I would say this is the one of the last, the indissolubility of marriage is one of the last aspects of the pre-Vatican II Catholic faith and practice that endured through Vatican II. There was never a, a, either a pastoral or doctrinal repudiation of that doctrine. And now we have a, uh, a pastoral repudiation of it and a, a doctrinal shelving of it as an ideal, you know, this ideal that people should live together <laughs> in holy matrimony for their whole lives. That's an ideal that's very hard to achieve. Uh, shelving that as an ideal and saying that we have to uh, deal with the realities of the present world and that many people are living in adultery, many people are living in fornication. So it's it's one of the last vestiges. I always have said in my sermons the Catholic Church is the only religion on the face of the earth that does not permit divorce and remarriage. And uh, now, you know, at least from externals or in the view of the world, that has, has collapsed. Now, the other thing I would say is that we'll see uh, how the Novus Ordo conservatives deal with this. This is another nail in their coffin, so to speak. This is a major blow. It, it's a torpedo in their side. That this, the, 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 at least the practice, uh, that, that they have a pastoral practice approved by the person whom they say is the Pope, to authorize, and they're even encouraged, to authorize fornication and adultery. Uh, and they, they see, the, I'm sure they do, if they have any training at all, all of the moral principles of the Catholic Church thrown to the dogs in this document. Well, I fear they may take the Cardinal Burke way out, Your Excellency, and just say it's his personal opinion. Uh, yes, I just wonder what breaking point they have, you know, when reality will break through that veil. I'd like to quote Bishop Sanborn on that. I think the quote was, if he were to declare uh, from the Logia of St. Peter's naked that there is no God, um, they would still stay in the Novus Ordo Church. So I'm not clear that the breaking point is, is anytime soon, uh, Your Excellency. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I guess my reflection, you were saying that uh, Nek Kosti, Nek Konubi would be your title for this encyclical. <laughs> and I, and Neither I see chased the, nor married. Right. I see, <laughs> the, I see the, the, the title of the encyclical as an inversion of the, the quote, go forth and sin no more, to simply sin uh, no more or no more sin. Uh, exclamation mark, uh, because that's, that's really the enduring thing I take away from this, the absolute destruction of, of objective norms. That's the comfort and ease of living a moral life. You know what is right. You know what's wrong. You don't have to discern every single situation. But with the abolition mm -hmm. of sin, uh, everything's up for grabs. And that actually makes for a much scarier moral universe. It's not a, a more welcoming or happy one at all. It's the exact opposite of what's intended. And could I add one last thing? The you know this is an attempt to draw in the fornicators and the adulterers. They will not be interested. It will not but, work. It no. won't work. But what does draw people to the Catholic Church is its objective morality and its insistence that the natural law and the law of God does not uh, do not admit of exceptions. That is clear. That is the, has the clarity of truth, which is the, an essential characteristic of truth. That's what draws people, especially young people, who don't like hypocrisy.
Well, I think that's a fitting place for us to close. Your Excellency, if Father, uh, as always, thanks for your time. Um, Your Excellency, dare I ask what's going on at the seminary other than seminarians reading Amoris Laetitia? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been away for a while. I was, uh, as you know, 10 days in Europe, and then I got back for a few days and ran out to California, where I gave a talk uh, on um, the great apostasy and how it relates to the present situation of the Church and also um, uh, to about 50 people in Fresno, and uh, had questions and answers. Uh, so uh, hopefully we're founding a new mass center in Fresno area. Uh, and uh, so I have just gotten back. I got back yes, last night uh, from California, so I have to catch up myself a little bit as to what's going on in the seminary. Uh, but, you know, it's the usual uh uh, stuff we we are uh at capacity next year i mean I, i've accepted uh, uh six new seminarians and uh, that will with the our present uh, seminarians that will put us at capacity i mean it's not a big capacity but it's the first time we have achieved that capacity so and this is only april i uh, i could get others applying uh this is when it really uh, picks up and so I really don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, what is obvious is that I do have to build a new wing on the seminary to uh, accommodate these people because, you know, we have them for seven years. So once you're in, if you persevere, you're in that room for seven years. So that excludes new people. It, it will get, you know, it will get to the point where I can't take anybody if I, if I don't expand the seminary because everyone's in for so long. And and so that's a major undertaking is to expand the seminary. So, but it, it it's necessary. I would hate to turn away somebody uh, who really is interested. And also, again, Bergoglio is our best friend on that. Uh, I think he is stirring up the fires of of people who finally see that this man is not a Catholic, uh, and uh, that they are turning toward us. Uh, our credibility has gone up because of him. That we have what we have been saying for the past decades. Uh, is bearing true, bearing out to be true. And uh, I, I think that's the reason for the uptick in the number of seminarians. Here, um, I would build on what His Excellency just said, that uh, I get um, a couple of emails a week from uh, people who uh, looked at Bergoglio trying to figure him out and eventually uh, came around to the state of Vicantus position. And it's 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 a stream of emails that uh, that I'm getting now from people who say that uh, the 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 state of the contents have to be right. This man can't be a Catholic. He can't possibly be a, uh, a, a real pope. And uh, that uh, you know the conclusions that you drew many years ago are in fact correct. And it's interesting because uh, you. F- don't find old people like myself. I just applied for Medicare today, um, but <laughs> you, you, I'll refrain from commenting. Yeah, well, I'll try not to drool on the phone. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but it's uh, it's very interesting. People in their twenties uh, and thirties, young couples, uh, etc. Uh, saying that yes, this what you say uh, makes sense. Uh, the there is no continuity in the Novus Ordo Church, and you can see that with Bergoglio. So that is very uh, interesting. 
I think, uh, very interesting to see uh, across the board. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, I'm continuing, going to continue my uh, practice of making uh, uh, videos on uh, the question of the Pope and in response to that uh, uh, book that the uh, SSPX uh, uh, people pull out, uh, pulled out. And uh, I was doing some statistics, and um, uh, as of last week, the videos that uh, I have done on this particular topic, uh, the, the uh, anti-state of a contest uh, campaign, the videos I've done on that have gotten 31,000 views. Mm. So that is, uh, I was surprised when I added it up, uh, the, the different sites that I have them posted on. So the message, I think, is, is uh, uh, getting out there, and the videos are an effective way to do that. So I'm uh, going to continue uh, along those lines, uh, uh, produ producing videos of the sort, and we think that they'll uh, um, produce much fruit. And apart I, I from would, that, I would pardon? suspect that they have not sold 31,000 copies of that book. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> It's not exactly written in a compelling way. <laughs> the, I mean, even uh, I'm one of the main targets who's attacked, and I mean, e even I find it sort of boring to read. But, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, that's just one of those things that's a tough job, but someone has to do it. So mm -hmm. um, then uh, the other thing is that the usual round of uh, uh, liturgical observances are uh, going on here. Uh, at uh, uh, St. Gertrude the Great. We had a very successful Holy Week and uh, Easter. And uh, looking forward to uh, the uh, Vigil of Pentecost and, and uh, uh, Confirmations then, which is when we do them. And then uh, the, the final uh, Sunday of, of May, uh, the, the uh, uh, First Communions finally during the Octave of Corpus Christi. So we've got a lot going on as usual. Well, as always, uh, thanks for your research. You're, you're reading this horrible document and taking the time to share your thoughts with our listeners, Your Excellency. And, Father, I will let you get back to your, your pastoral work and your discernment of your ministry. <laughs> yep. Thank you, Stephen. You're very merciful. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you. Bye. All right. If you have any questions for His Excellency or Father or any clarification from this episode, if you weren't discerning well enough yourself, please feel free to write us M-A-I-L, mail at truerestoration.org. That's also where you'd write to ask for any excerpting of this uh, broadcast for your own uses. Remember that all rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden because the flagship show is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.